Recovery is stupendous. Achievable. Hope. Freedom. 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 Empowering. It's unique to everyone. It's a journey, not a destination. Getting a new lease on life. Finding restoration after you fall down. Recovery is having the freedom to enjoy life. For me, it was finding a way to really love myself. My recovery is possible in part because of my own sense of purpose. Good morning and welcome to another Recovery Talks podcast where we meet weekly with different guests to talk about all things recovery. I'm Andy Nunes, Assistant Director of MPN, and I have two very special guests today. Uh, both of our guests are currently working with the MOMS program, Montana Obstetrics and Maternal Support. Uh, it's a demonstration project at Billings Clinic. Um, it's a federally funded program tasked with improving maternal health outcomes through innovations such as simulation training, Project ECHO, certification courses, telehealth services, prenatal education, and perinatal substance use mental health programming. Today we have Stephanie Fitch with us. She's the grant program manager for moms, and Valerie Lofgren is the moms regional engagement coordinator Based on mutual desires to improve the lives of children and families in their community, Stephanie and Valerie have also developed a nonprofit organization called Allies for All that seeks to provide support and educational programming for foster and adoptive families caring for substance-exposed kiddos, teen survivors of sexual violence, parents of teens affected by sexual and domestic violence, male survivors of domestic violence, and parents of children with ADHD and other behavioral disorders. Welcome to the show, Steph and Val. How are you guys? We're good. We're so happy that you asked us to, to chime in and join you today. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm so, so excited to have you guys here. Today, we're going to talk about life expectancy and maternal mortality. Uh, I read an article a few weeks ago put out by the Harvard Medical School called Why Life Expectancy is Falling in the U.S., and it had some pretty interesting information. The article goes on to say that life expectancy has been on the rise in the U.S. until 2020, when it fell two years from 79 years to 77 years. In 2021, it fell to just over 76 years. The article credits COVID-19, of course, drug overdoses, and accidental injury accounted for about two-thirds of this decline. The other reasons included were heart and liver disease and suicides. The fact that it mentioned drug overdose and suicide specifically sends off a lot of alarm bells. Um, and I knew that we had to do a podcast about it. I knew I wanted you both as guests because of the amazing work that you're doing. Uh, the article also points out that some of the alarming disparities in life expectancy and also brings awareness to other measures uh, of health such as infant mortality and maternal mortality. We just both went through the article, again, just to refresh before the podcast. What were your guys's, what were your guys's thoughts? What jumped out at you and were you surprised by what the article said? Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I don't think either of us were necessarily surprised by the data that came out of this. Um, we didn't know that life expectancy overall mm -hmm. had declined, but 
in what we do with the MOMS grant, we recognize that there are some significant contributing factors that are leading to um, mothers in our state passing away during the pregnancy and postpartum period. Um, and they do unfortunately line up with some of the reasons listed uh, in that article for life expectancy overall. And so, um, yeah. I think the fact was a little bit shocking, just that we are on the decline, but the causation um, is pretty common to our conversation in the work that we do. Right. And yeah, and especially when it talked about, you know, biracial group and mm -hmm. how significant a disparity American Indians in the United States are facing. Unfortunately, that's, you know, right in line with maternal health data. And it's something that, you know, as a, as a state, and as a country, I mean, we have to figure out, we have to do better. Yeah. And, and specifically in Montana, you know, if you think about um, some of our rurality problems here, you know, we don't have that access for some groups because we are so spread out and, you know, driving hours to get to a critical access hospital at times. And so um, I think that plays a big part when we're looking at, at some of those pieces too, Montana specific. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I thought the same Pretty much the same things when I read the articles. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily surprised by it, but it was unsettling. I think to have what I've seen, um, you know, and experienced in the work that I've done in the behavioral health field, um, really be validated and confirmed with the numbers mm -hmm. that it said. I, I was surprised that that the life expectancy, you know, had fallen almost, you know, three years in three years time. Um, that says a lot. It's been on the rise for years and years and years. And in three years, what a decline we've had. We've pushed our life expectancy across the U.S. back three years. But I wasn't surprised by the reasons, the causations. And, um, and I think, you know, what they defined that those disparities, I agree that that's, you know, what, what we saw you know, at the treatment center that I worked at in the behavioral health field, I you see those same kind of disparities, um, unavailability of, of services, lack of access to services, miles and miles in between, poverty. Situation of support, you know, um, recovery doesn't start in the, you know, designated amount of time you're in treatment that you're just picking at it. You know, we know that, and it takes support in all areas. And so I think that's something that um, isn't talked about as much as it needs to be in, in mainstream, you know, understanding of addiction and recovery, um, that it's not just, okay, let's detox, let's learn some things and then you're fixed, right? There is yeah. no fixing, there's healing. And that's not a linear process. It's cyclical and it includes every aspect of our existence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that, that is challenging that I saw a lot, which created you know, you know, continuation, relapse, you know, people coming back through the doors um, is that we get them all, you know, fixed up and, you know, with their 30 days and they would graduate um, and then send them back to the same home environment, the same place that they were living, very little support, very access to services back there, where, wherever there is. Um, and their the chance of success just, you know, we didn't, we had, family programming, but we weren't addressing the whole family and we weren't addressing the community and we weren't, you know, what does continuing support look like? And 
And I think that kind yeah. of resonates when you think of, of maternal support also, you know, you, you work really hard, you, you get all this, this care potentially while you're, you're pregnant, um, you know, maybe go through some hard things, but you have these, these resources and you have a baby and people are congratulating you and um, supporting you. And a month later, two months later, you're all alone with this infant in your own bubble, potentially in, you know, rural Montana and things can get really dark and really difficult if you don't have those those same kind of supports or access to some kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think what is scary and I mean pulls at my heart is that so much of this is preventable. Mm-hmm. You know, when yes. we look at maternal death across the United States and we look at causes of um life expectancy going down like overdose is preventable, mm-hmm. you know, what we can, we can have medication assisted therapy. We can have rescue products. We can be doing more in terms of prevention. We can be doing more in terms of better pain management programming. Um, we can, you know, be training our first responders and just have more resources in that respect. When we look at suicide, it's the same thing. We can um, improve our our opportunities to access care. And we have seen a number of, you know, like remote health psychiatry programs pop up and be available. And I think that's huge for our state. But then we look at like depression screening rates across the United States. And it came out in 2022 that only 20% of pregnant women were asked about postpartum depression. And so how are we going to you know, catch depression and suicidality for not asking questions? Mm You know, it's something I don't want to say simple because I know as a, you know, as a counselor, how hard that conversation can be. Yeah. But I am willing to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. if it means that I'm asking yes. a question that can save somebody else that can right. get resources they need. And so I think those are the types of things that you can mm-hmm. get overwhelmed looking at statistics like, oh my gosh, how do we, how do we even start to address the problem? And it's things like, Hey, I'm at my primary care doctor and they asked me, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, yeah. I checked in at a visit and, um, and then, you know, groups like all the ones that we've worked for that are saying, Hey, it's okay to ask for help. Like we're here to listen. It's okay. There is, you know, there is stigma around mental health, but I mean, at least in what I've seen it, it's decreasing. People are talking about it. And even though it's uncomfortable, more people are working mm-hmm. those conversations. Yeah. Um, And so hopefully, I mean, that eases some of the burden, but, you know, when we look at COVID-19, it caused more isolation and our rates of suicide and drug overdose went up. And so, yeah, I think that's what. And I think sometimes there's a challenge with thinking of um, where the onus lies, you know, Mm -hmm. um, oh, I'm the primary care provider. This isn't my task, right. Or I'm the, um, the, the addictions counselor. So, you know, I have a different scope or, you know, I'm just the CNA and really the onus is on everybody. The more people that show up and ask the questions and sit and share space, the more likely somebody's going to be able to give you a vulnerable answer. Like, oh, it's not just that one nurse, like this team of people, or, you know, this connection is, is asking and supporting and they want to help. Right. Yeah, there can't be a wrong door. And I think the no wrong door approach is where we need to mm-hmm. keep going. 
Um, and then that just vulnerability, we're talking about like, hey, yep, yeah, I might be in this chair as the professional, but I've been there on the other side of that chair and I know what it's like to have to ask for help. Women's help. Yeah. Yep. And so showing up with our own humanity. And I don't think that people necessarily recognize that we can have such a big impact individually. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think I agree. Everything seems very siloed the way that it, you know, in, in our current system structure. Um, and when and when it's when it's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. Like everybody thinks that the next person is going to ask that question, is going to take care of that need, is going to have that hard conversation. And when you're expecting everybody else to do it, the reality is so are they. And so nobody's doing it. And then people fall through the cracks um, and people don't get the support that they need. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, we always are encouraging people to ask for help, you know, but I think we sometimes forget how hard that is. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, yeah, you should ask for help if you have that capability and you have that that ability to be vulnerable. But reminding ourselves, like, we also have the responsibility to ask yeah. if somebody needs help and to offer it's it. It's kind of the opposite side of that coin, you know. Yes, you should ask for help, but also if you have the capability, you should offer help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Little, I agree. You know, I agree. One minute conversation can really plant a seed and, and really change somebody's trajectory. Yeah. And saying like, hey, I might be, you know, I am an addiction counselor and under that purview, I can't treat depression, but that doesn't mean I can't say, hey, I'm worried. You know, I've noticed some helplessness, some hopelessness. Um, can I help you connect to some more intensive help? You know, yes, and I think absolutely. that really is the beauty of what peer support has offered, especially yes. as kind of in tandem with addiction counseling and other disciplines is that you know, it's, it's another person that can be out in the community, have eyes on a person that might be struggling. And that vulnerability seems to be there more often of, Hey, I've been there. I can tell that something's off and I don't have to be the expert. That's not my scope, but I can be a human and I can help you find that help. I think that's so important. And, and I wholeheartedly agree with you that, um, being a peer support specialist and the role that a peer support specialist plays in connection, in human connection through shared lived experience. I'm not trying to fix your problem. I'm not trying to get you into the hospital. You're not, I'm not going to call CPS. Like my goal as a peer support specialist is to support you and help you succeed at the path that you choose to take towards wellness, whatever kind of wellness that is, whether that be, you know, like your, what you guys do so much, whether it be like maternal wellness, SUD recovery, mental health recovery, they have, um, you know, peer support in diabetes and cancer centers. And, you know, it's just having somebody that's like, yeah, this is hard. This is hard and I have been there and I know how it feels and this is what I did. What are your thoughts? How do you want to proceed? How can I support you? Do you need resources? I can connect you with those. And the willingness to talk about that experience and normalize it mm -hmm. so that people don't feel alone. Yeah, and that, I mean, with the moms program, so much of what we've done um, through Empaths, which is universal screening for substance use in the 
um, OBGYN and primary care setting really has been peer led. The person that's in that care management position is in recovery, is a, you know, a, a certified peer. And he is able to connect with people about, hey, I've been a new parent and I've been actively using and I've had to, you know, excuse my language, but get my shit together for another human. Like, I know what that looks like and I'm here to support you in whatever way, you know? And at first we really thought like, hey, he's going to help get people into treatment. And more often than not, his tasks, (laughs) I mean, we do get a lot of people, don't get me wrong. We get a lot a lot of parents into therapy and into treatment programming. But I think the biggest cases that he's really had to tackle is finding things like, I really want to go to treatment, but I don't have anyone to take care of my dog. And I'm not willing to give up my dog Yes, because that's the only person that's been there for me during the hard times. And having that capability to say, you know what, that is a challenge. Like, let's find that resource and let's get someone to take care of that dog. You know, that ends Barriers. up- Yeah, like that mom got to treatment and didn't use for those final four months of that pregnancy and was sober when baby came. And, you know, and so many times people are like, you know, hey, you can't come into your ultrasound because you brought the dog with you. And we've got our peer support out, you know, he's out walking Walking a dog so that the patient can go to their appointment. And so I think finding ways to be more human um, and address those human things that keep us, you know, like, we quote unquote know the right thing to do, but sometimes there's those things in the way that we're just, you know, if we have that person that's like, you know what, I will take the dog for a walk while you go to that appointment or, you know, I'll help you make some phone calls to um, find housing or find transportation. Like let's connect with, you know, a rapid rehousing program. Like I understand that like this medical care might not be the priority if you don't have somewhere to live. Like and taking that time without judgment. And those are the things that are going to save lives and improve life expectancy is addressing social determinants and recognizing that that's going to have so much more impact than, you know, more medical intervention. Yeah. Right. I mean, really right. meaning where they're at and, and just showing up with space to hold and hands to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, totally agree. So what is mom's doing? What is the mom's program doing to improve health outcomes for pregnant and parenting families across Montana? Let's talk about what you guys are doing. <laughs> yeah. So just, you know, we've got so many programs and so it, it's hard to pick, you know, just a couple to talk about, but I already mentioned empaths where we have, you know, universal screening, um, making sure that every person that comes through our OBGYN clinic is asked you know, not just if they've used substances, but if the people around them Mm -hmm. have, and still recognizing that, you know, even if it was their parents or their friends or their partner that have struggled with substances, that person probably needs some support. Um, And then, you know, that centralized care manager is there to follow them through pregnancy and the postpartum period um, to help them get into treatment, to help them get therapy, but also to be an advocate with them if child protective services intervenes. Um, the other oh. thing I don't think people realize is that Montana has one of the higher utilization rates of um, kids in the foster care system per capita. Um, and the rate of a mom completing suicide goes up if a baby is removed from her care. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a, a job like care management in that time period where they have an advocate, you know, they have a plan, they're doing all of the things that they need to do to be in a safe place to parent when baby comes, or to have child returned as quickly as possible, 
you know, those interventions we hope long-term will improve maternal mortality um, and just overall family health in yeah. the state. Yeah. Uh, and be able to shift resources toward prevention um, is really what, I mean, I think we would like to see. Um, we also have a lot of provider education programs just talking about maternal health um, and different perinatal, you know, medical topics. We do simulation training, we do lecture series um, that cover just the different medical conditions of pregnancy, both medical and behavioral health, because so often our doctors in rural Montana and provider teams, they end up taking care of pregnant women and doing child deliveries, even though that's not what they're trained in. That rurality, right? Piece. You know, they're at a critical, critical access hospital. And we think about people coming from um, some of the areas around Billings that end up delivering in Hardin, they do about 50 deliveries a year and they're not a birthing facility just from people trying to get to Billings and ending up having to pull off and go to the emergency room there. And so how do we make sure that the people in those areas have the resources they need has been a big thing that moms focuses on, whether that be training, whether that be equipment. Um, that's really what, you know, some of our big push has been the last couple of years is to do more simulation training with sites, but also get them training equipment and then teach their leadership how to design and implement training so that they can keep this going. Yes. Um, what I really love about that piece too is, is we've um, incorporated um, kind of behavioral health scenarios too, um, trying to demonstrate how to have some of those difficult conversations, um, teaching about, you know, uh, SBIRT and motivational interviewing and, you know, some of those skills that um, I don't know that um, medical professionals sometimes realize these are available to use and can be really, really helpful. Yeah. yeah. And so casting a large light on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, um, incorporating that into simulation training and saying, hey, let's make sure that we have um, transgender patients represented when we're doing yes. medical simulation. Let's make sure that we have um, different races, genders, mm -hmm. religions when we're designing scenarios so that our providers have the opportunity to interact with um, you know, these different simulated patients and then can tra transfer those skills into the clinical setting, uh, you know, and providing lecture series and other learning opportunities about cultural safety and how do we make not just trauma-informed care, um, you know, we're moving away from tolerance and humility into how do I just make other people feel safe? Like the ultimate goal is that regardless of who walks in, they feel safe in my presence as a medical provider, as, you know, part of that care team, even as part of like the representative at the desk at the mm -hmm. hospital, like how do I make other people feel safe is really where we're going. Um, and so I think that'll have a big impact too, because like we said, we know it's hard to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. So how do Especially. we make it safer for people to do that? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I think there's always that, um, and speaking from a place with like of behavioral health, right? Whether that be substance use or mental health challenges, um, that feeling of like, I don't want to be judged for my condition, for my behavior, for, you know, my substance use that add on top of that, right? Pregnancy or having kids at home. And um, there's just so much fear that goes into asking for help. and. I, I love it. I love everything that you guys are doing. I think it plays such a big role in 
Um, how do we fill the gaps in our state? How do we make sure that the people that need help and need care and need support are receiving all of that? And I'm just so impressed by all of the work that you guys are doing to make sure that that happens. Yeah, and we just like, I, I think a big part of the moms team all at Billings Clinic, the University of Montana and the Department of Public Health is we recognize we can't do it without disciplines like peer support. You know, moms has invested in um, addiction recovery doula training, you know, so if there are people that are already certified peer supports, if you're interested in supporting pregnant and postpartum, not only women, but families, you know, there are daddy doulas mm -hmm. and you want to walk alongside patients that are in, um, in that journey of either new parenthood or, um, you know, it doesn't even have to be new parenthood, but in that, that period of their life, we offer those trainings in partnership with, um, one health and tree of life doula care, We've also invested in indigenous doula trainings mm -hmm. and just want to make sure that there's social support out there because people are going to go back to communities that might be medically underserved and behavioral health underserved. But I think there's a peer in every community mm -hmm. and we need to better tap into those resources. And so, you know, absolutely, that's what we've invested in as a demonstration project with moms is, you know, supporting those trainings. Um, so that peers can have more opportunities to serve in roles in the perinatal period. And then also trying to identify ways that we can help get more coverage as far as payment goes for those services. So working with the Department of Public Health as they head to the legislature and, you know, what data can we provide? There are all these studies coming out that we know social support is one of the biggest things that's going to save lives across the board. Yes. You know, how can we help? You know, we can't advocate we're a, we're a, um, because we're federally funded, you know, like we don't engage in any lobbying activities, but we do have these programs where we have so many success stories that whatever we can offer in the way of both quantitative and qualitative data, you know, we're making sure we're doing that just because elevating the stories of people that have struggled and overcome, you know, we know that that's what, what's going to make the impact and get the changes made. Absolutely. So if somebody is interested, if somebody needs help, is interested in the MOMS program, is interested in um, some of the trainings or simulations that you guys offer, how would somebody get in touch with you? Yeah, so we have a website that has information on all the different programs. And so it's www.mtmoms.org. Uh, there's a page on there specifically dedicated to empaths. So if there are provider teams or patients that are interested in getting involved with that program and the care manager there, um, that's on the website. You can register for the ECHO educational clinics. Um, and then there's also a form on the website where if you're interested in any of the educational opportunities that we sponsor, so the peer recovery doula training, indigenous doula training, um, postpartum support internationals, mental health training, all of that can be done through a form on the website. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for everything that you guys are doing and um, for being really informative guests and willing to talk about hard things that people don't always wanna talk about. Um, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining us on another Recovery Talks podcast. Uh, we hope that you join us every week. If you are interested in hearing a different topic that you haven't heard about or being a guest, you can reach me at mandy at mtpeernetwork.org. 
thank you guys so much for coming. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works. Recovery is possible. Recovery is possible. (laughs) Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. possible.